The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Welcome back. This is part two of our tradecraft analysis of 2001 Spy Game. In part one, we ran through all the flashbacks of the film in chronological order from 1975 to 1985. We talked about how those flashbacks build up a picture of the relationship between Nathan Muir and Tom Bishop, those being played by Robert Redford and Brad Pitt, respectively. If you missed out on part one, there's a simple solution. You might want to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so that you can always stay caught up with us. That's right, Dave. So with all the events of the past having been discussed, we're ready to jump into the events of the present day. In this case, that would be 1991. Uh, We're going to talk briefly about Bishop's failed attempt to rescue Elizabeth Hadley from a Chinese prison before we go into detail about how Muir handles the fallout of what is a potentially massive international incident. Muir is going to need to employ all of his very best tradecraft if he's going to save the day in this episode of Spies Like Us. So really all this uh, Elizabeth Hadley stuff is what's going to lead us up to uh, our 1991 present day events where uh, basically Bishop had figured out where Elizabeth was being held. It's the Su Chow prison. Somehow Bishop has gotten uh, a team of some kind together. Oh, 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 I see. To help him, uh, you know, uh, uh, sneak into the prison and try to get Hadley out. Uh, let's, can we throw out this weird one right here too? Like, um that it seems weird that uh, once the Chinese got their hands on Hadley, who's supposedly involved in uh, a A terrorist action action against one of their pieces of property. I see where you're going with this because this bugged both of us. Like, how is it they're going to execute Bishop for being a common criminal, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit, but they're holding Elizabeth, who's a terrorist, against the Chinese government, and all of a sudden she's being held forever. I I I, I call minus movie points on this one. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm I'm with this you is, on that. This is one of those Hitchcock ice box moments, I guess. Uh huh. Oh yeah, <laughs> it all makes sense until like two days later, you're like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's the opening of the film, which kind of sets the tone as well as builds some suspense because you're not really sure what's going on. So we've kind of created a little bit of mystery as well as like, like some action suspense. Um, he, he comes in to deliver the vaccines or whatever. And uh, like the, the idea is he's going to get in and then get shocked by uh like what i don't know what is that like those electrical panels and and he's gonna come back from it and in the middle of him coming back from it he's gonna sneak in with a pistol find elizabeth and sneak her out they have a little hidden level under the like medical benches that you always see that they're gonna hide her under and and then bring her out and get out uh how they're caught he gives a piece of gum to one of the inmates that freaks out. Like, it's like, wow, here's, 
here's a stick of gum. And this is a callback to Mira saying, just have a stick of gum in your pocket, a pocket knife, some cigarette. You know, you don't need technology. You just need to look normal and have some stuff you might need. And so the stick of gum kind of quiets the prisoner. But the prisoner's like blowing bubbles as he's like getting the vaccine. And that's what tips off the guards, which I'm, I'm a little confused by ish. Like, I mean, yeah, none of this stuff should have came in, but there were people there, but that's what tips them off. They stop the van, they pull Bishop in and now Bishop's in prison. And from what we hear from the meeting, uh, he's going to be executed in 24 hours as a common criminal. He was arrested for espionage and they're going to execute him as a common criminal. I want to take time right now to talk about this whole 24 hour thing which which gets referenced like several times in the movie but i couldn't figure out like what the rules of the game were trade talks are going on in the background that's important right the chinese you know we're not privy to their thinking here but i have to wonder like what's going on in their heads do they think this has something to do with the trade talks i don't see why Maybe Bishop like chose a really bad time to to try to pull this off. But when Muir gets introduced to the situation, he makes some comments, uh, a, a few key comments, which which I'm trying to untangle. Uh, one of which is that the U.S. president could just claim Bishop within 24 hours, like say, "Oh, he's one of ours, and he's not a spy." Okay, cool. Um, there's also a comment that like after 24 hours, Muir says like Bishop would be allowed to start talking. Whereas yeah, like seems, maybe if the president like doesn't claim you within 24 hours, then you're allowed to just like fend for yourself, you know, like for the first 24 hours, shut the fuck up. Don't say anything, you know, uh, like we'll, we'll try to work it out on our end. Uh, but after 24 hours, like you, you're free to just, do what you got to do to survive. Right. And I couldn't really find anything about this, that like an agent after being held for 24 hours can do whatever they want. Uh, that's something that I agree with you is kind of weird, but it seems to me the 24 hour rule, the movie has established is basically the Chinese government saying, we're going to execute this guy in 24 hours. You have that long to say something. What have the Chinese communicated to the CIA? We know from analysis of the movie, they didn't go public on the news with it. Or did they? Like, because Common Criminal, I heard that. But, like, you you don't, like, rush to execute a Common Criminal. I mean, that's the guy that steals an orange from an orange cart. I'm wondering... If we're supposed to understand that China is making a trade deal like poker play against America to make a play and have the upper hand in the trade negotiations. Right. So, like, is China, we know they haven't gone public with, or maybe their public story is like common criminal, blah, blah, blah. But, like, their (laughs) secret message to the CIA, which I assume they have some channels. Right. You know, is to say like we're gonna we're gonna burn your we're gonna burn your boy at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. 
Um, which again, like, I don't know why they're, I don't know why they're doing that. I don't, I don't think the Chinese play makes sense. I think the 24 hour thing is just slapped on and maybe there's some justification for it. We couldn't tease it out, but I would generally just call it like kind of, I mean, it works in the movie, but I'm going to call it minus, I don't know, procedural points for this is not exactly understood why this timetable has been established. Right. Although I I noted too, like, um, you know, we were talking about it earlier and or last night and you mentioned that uh, Muir asks them how much time do we have and that's when well they they actually no he he actually says like how much time does the president have to claim him and they just say 24 hours right but that's i think that's important because if there's a 24 hour hard set rule that applies to this situation muir would have already known that right he wouldn't have to ask right um that's all i got to say about that like it yeah. just seems like seems like they just wanted to put a timeline like a ticking clock element into the script uh but i was i mean i was sufficiently curious because that's the kind of guy i am to try to figure yeah. out like like is is this 24 hour thing like legit uh yeah. as far as i can tell like it's it's not but uh the jury's out on that topic. And I would yeah. seriously love to hear more or find out more from a more informed source on what the actual rules are in this situation. I think that would be really interesting. The The main meat of the movie is what Muir does when he finds out that his uh, one of his protégés, yeah. maybe his most important protégé, uh, is in trouble. And... Yeah, Mir wakes up to a call that mm-hmm. his boy has been arrested for espionage. Uh, but on the way to like speeding to Langley, Mir calls him from his like car phone or his cell phone in the car, and that dude is pissed. And he's like, "Are you calling me from the car? Wait till you get and call me from something secure or whatever." At some point, the the dick that we're going to talk about, that the, the asshole dude, is the one that spotted that phone call in phone records uh, at Langley and was like, this guy's been working against us the whole time. And that specific call triggered a big like problem. And that's when they started looking at Muir. And you don't want people looking at you. That phone call, which was like against all espionage field type of rules really, really uh, triggered a lot of problems for him. I would like to mention that the, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a 2001 movie, you know, a problem that movies run into over the last 30 years, given the explosion of cellular technology Mm-hmm. and how fast it's it's progressed is uh you know there's some movies uh you know that like uh 
you know, they, they make absolutely no sense if, if the person had had a cell phone. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, this is 1991 is, is the, the period we're talking about. And I did notice that there's kind of some, I feel like some confusion on what technology is available uh, at certain points they have cell phones at certain points. They're still using pagers and it's well, certain... 91. They would have had pagers. Right. And, it... and, and they would have had cell phones. Okay. And at certain points, like, you know, when, when Mir's wife supposedly when Gladys is pretending to call Muir and right. pretending to be his wife, she routes the call into the conference call system instead of just, I don't know, calling his cell phone, which later in the movie we establish he has got. And and at first, like, we see he's got a cell phone in his car. Right. So maybe they, I, which I think would be a very appropriate rule uh, before you go into the conference room, or maybe right at the gate at Langley, like surrender yeah. your fucking cell phones. <laughs> right. All communications <laughs> in or out of here need to go through the system. Um, but we well, will. That's see. probably what it is. They probably won't allow the cell phones in or something. Okay, but then he shouldn't. He also maybe shouldn't have a pager. Now, when he does get to his personal office, uh, I want to say I. Personally, I'd be really suspicious of a CIA guy with that burnt USA flag artwork in his office featured so prominently. Uh, I don't, I, I can't be a hundred percent sure, but the, my impression of, of CIA is it's a very like uh, straight laced button down operation where uh, something like that is just not something that would be like tolerated. I, give it I don't know. It kind of gives a lot of character. I mean, it, I, I guess artistically it shows how seasoned Mir is and like the colors still stand even after being burned. Like, I don't I don't know. I saw the painting. And I thought it was kind of cool and artistic, but it, it is kind of odd to be in a CIA office. But I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he gets he gets uh, access to the cable that the Hong Kong guy called him about. Uh, while he was, well, actually that woke him up and alerted him to the situation that Bishop is in trouble um, by basically playing like buddy-buddy kind of thing, which yeah. he does a lot of uh, in this film. And um, Harker, our kind of nemesis character in, at the CIA, is uh, uh, waiting in his office also to ask him for his personal files on Bishop. I don't understand why he's such a dick. Like, it, it's he—he he seems like kind of like an upstart or like someone just trying to climb the ladder. But it's like overwhelmingly dickish moves from Harker. Muir and Harker clearly don't like each other, like just from right. the get-go. And the reason for that's never given. Um, I could have imagined that maybe the Operation Sideshow is Harker's personal like project. So he's like protective of it, but I'm not, I'm not super sure about that. 
Uh, I did love his performance uh, as a character actor. I think he really stands out in a lot of his, a lot of his stuff. He's fun to watch. Yeah, he played a really good dick. Mm-hmm. So at this point, like, what does what does Mir know? He knows that Bishop was captured in China. Uh, he knows that CIA upstairs wants his personal files on Bishop, and for some reason, he doesn't want to give them those files. He puts the requested files in a burn bag for Gladys and just gives them like a little tiny note, like just one little, uh, one memo in a, in a folder, which is obviously like really slim. It's not what they were looking for, but his whole angle on that is cause he wants to, uh, you know, he wants to tell Harker, well, most of it's like up here tapping his tapping his. Yeah. Forehead. And that's how he kind of gets into the meeting. Because uh, I guess the guard at the big meeting room like was like, oh, you can't come in. And then they basically had to bring him in because all he had documented was like a couple doc, like maybe three or four pages in a slim folder. Yeah. Um, but I mean, so plus five points on execution there. But I feel like minus five points on the fact that he just starts acting completely super paranoid before he has any cause. Um. I mean, he turns out to be right, but, uh, like, I just have to ask myself, like, is this how he acts anytime anybody asks him for anything? I think it's just Bishop just has it ingrained like he's breathing, like, you know, just don't give any information away or don't give too much away. Or the only information you give is, like, what's necessary. Yeah, I agree. And he's definitely, uh, like, his spy actions per minute are, like, super, super high in this movie. Like, you know, when you say, like, that thing about him being always on, that is absolutely true. Uh, he doesn't, you know, everything that he preached and taught to Bishop is completely full on display uh, in the office sequence. Um, I just wanted to flag that, it, you know, like, that's just seems like over over the course of his career, if this is the way he acts every time someone asks him for something, uh, like as his default mode, at some point, if I was his boss, I would have like had a talk with him. Right. <laughs> it seems that like that's how they all operate, though. Like even in the board meeting, everybody's kind of holding in a lot of information. And it might just be for Harker. Like he obviously doesn't like Harker, so he's going to give him a hard time. Versus like if... Uh... You know, one of the dudes he like came up with asked him. He'd probably be a little bit more helpful, not 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 too much, but a little bit more. Yeah, like if if his buddy Folger had asked him for the file, is this how he would have acted? And and if it is a personal thing with him and Harker, like the movie maybe could have explained why, right? <laughs> An early, really great example which I want to uh, showcase of like his spy actions per minute um, is okay. So he's got the, he's got, um, he's got the files ready to burn. If he tells Gladys to burn them and he's in the meeting right now, he's just collecting information. His ears really perk up and, and he gets spooked when he realizes that uh, one of the people in the meeting is from the national security council. Uh, so I looked into that. I mean, can you guess why that would freak him out? Um, well, if this is like 91, this is probably post intelligence community set up and they're kind of, uh, more, inv they're probably at odds with the CIA in general. 
Well, I think I think it's more that uh, the NS the NSC uh-huh. is uh, the council that directly reports and briefs the president. In fact, like the president is the chairman of the NSC. So what I think is going on here, what's like kicking him into overdrive is realizing that this is something that is uh, like literally like what's going on in this meeting is, is going to be direct. Like the president sent one of his guys into this room to like find out what's going on and, and everything that's going on is going to be directly reported to the president. So that like raises the stakes. He's, he still doesn't know what the game is here. Right. It tells him that the stakes are like ultra high. And yeah. When he sneaks out his little pager, which we said just a minute ago, maybe, you know, if you're not allowed to have cell phones in this room, then why are you allowed to have a pager? Um, <laughs> but uh, in response, she calls him, uh, she calls into the office under pretense of being his wife. And in that converse, in that conversation that he's having where he's, you know, uh, uh, talking about one thing so that they don't know what's really going on. Uh, he manages to like a tell her to just hold off on burning the bag and B she gets the opportunity to tell him that uh, they've sent some guys into his office to rifle it for more stuff on Bishop. And then he also like extends that conversation with a lot of yas and mm-hmms, uh to the point where they've kind of forgotten about him and are starting to, uh, you know, talk amongst themselves about the things they say lead you to believe that they're trying to frame Bishop as a mentally unstable assassin for some reason. So this phone call, uh, it's just one thing that he does, but I'm going to give it my number two best tradecraft in this instant as just like a great case example of his spy actions per minute that he executes throughout the entire film. Yeah. He hits a number of birds with one stone, which is with just this one phone call. And he's constantly doing stuff like this in the whole movie. Yeah. He's he's never, he's, he's never off. Um, Right. (laughs) And, and nothing, nothing that's going around on around him escapes his notice or his attention. All of the like the conference room sequences, um, ju- the director Tony Scott said uh, for one thing it was like the hardest thing to film because just you know just guys talking in a room, um, yeah. <laughs> but to to kind of put some like the the right psychic energy into it, he he said he tried to envision all of this as a poker game uh, where different people are are revealing like at different points, like revealing different amounts of information that key other actors into uh, deciding what other piece of information. I thought you'd find that interesting. You like poker, right? Yeah. I I like that tidbit a lot. I I think that's kind of cool. And that's exactly kind of how the boardroom acts. It's just a bunch of people. Some of them aren't really that involved. Some of them are, some of them are more on than others. You know, it's, it's kind of like every scene in the boardroom is like a new hand that's being dealt. Uh, along the way, one of the key, one of the pieces of information that he does, uh, like one of the cards that he does get a peek at, is uh, that this has something to do with Operation Sideshow. 
So Folger's willing to divulge that Operation Sideshow is uh, something that the CIA is running uh, in eastern China to bug the Chinese side of the trade negotiations that are supposedly happening in the background here. Yeah, because it's during the trade negotiations, and so they're, what, just bugging, like, government offices? Yeah. And I think that's the biggest concern of Bishop showing up is that, uh, like, his kind of stunt that he pulled could compromise Operation Sideshow as in, like, they'll start looking and now they can't bug the offices anymore. They, they might just be on a higher alert, maybe. I totally understand that, um, you know, during these trade negotiations, uh, this prison break operation of bishops is coming at a really bad time. The way the people are acting in the room definitely seems to be of like a mindset that the capture of Bishop compromises Operation Sideshow. And it, it doesn't because he wasn't part of that operation and he shouldn't know anything about it. So my number three worst tradecraft, it goes to the movie, just the failure, <laughs> you know, the, the failure of the film to connect Bishop with Sideshow. Well, I mean, it's kind of coming up. Wasn't it like after the phone conversation, this is when he like shouts out, oh, I think I figured it out. And it like spooks everybody in the room. And, it, and it, he was, I think he did that on purpose. He kind of threw a wrench in the room, but he was like, I think I remember where I have the Bishop files. With that, he excuses himself from the office and that's his opportunity to tell Gladys to burn the Bishop files. He's made that decision. Um mm-hmm. Again, I didn't see anything in the conversation that they just had that would make him like jump to that, but you know, we just covered that. Um, mm-hmm. But he also wants, he also grabs the opportunity to get the number of someone named Digger Gibson. We know right now he's a journalist working in Hong Kong. Later we find mm-hmm. out he's also uh, MI6, which isn't super important to the movie. Um, but. The, the thing is, he wants to get the story of Bishop's capture out to the broad media to basically get it on CNN. And of course, he now that he's super worried and freaked out, uh, he doesn't make that phone call from his own office. He again kind of uses his his buddy, buddy, Ferris Bueller kind of charm <laughs> to, <laughs> uh, to make the phone call from uh, Andy Andy Unger's Andy Unger, younger, U N G E R. It's probably Unger. Unger, Unger, yeah. Um, To to make the call from Andy Unger's office, which is down the hall. And while he's doing that, while he's making the phone call and arranging for the for the you know uh, surreptitious press release, uh, he just happens to notice that. Andy has left his CIA badge on the desk there, and he takes the opportunity <laughs> to just pocket that. That is definite. Well, I mean, first it's minus five points for Andy for leaving that shit on his desk. Right. <laughs> I feel like it's a little bit of minus five points for Muir as well, because he doesn't at this moment need the badge or know that he will need it later, even though he's going to end up using it later. Um, Andy noticing when he comes back to his office, if Andy had noticed his missing badge, that could have been really bad for, for Muir, like really yeah. bad. Um, and the thing is that Muir has just played what he thinks 
is his ace card that is going to just win the poker game, which is the call to Digger Gibson. So why is he taking any further risks at this point? Call that minus five points. Oh, I would call that plus five points. It's all about adapting to situations and being prepared for whatever. You always got to keep like an ace in the hole somewhere. I'd I'd give that plus five points Just, just in case, you know. Stealing, stealing your coworkers CIA badge just in case. You think that's good? I, I, I can't get there. <laughs> now they still want to hear more about Bishop, so you know he indulges them. This is the point where he tells them the story about uh, Bishop's recruitment and his uh, early operation in Berlin with the uh, Anne Cathcart thing. And right. It's it's when they the thing they key in the the moral of the story or the interesting tidbit that they take from that story is uh, that Anne Cathcart was uh, murdered a couple months later. And, you know, their thought is like, well, maybe it could have been Bishop. And, you know, that seems to to be like a a positive development for them, which obviously is going to key Miroff even more. Um, that, this is when that, they start crafting the idea of framing him as like a unstable person. Like Harker's even like, ah, motive and opportunity. He was still in Berlin. He was angry and she was beaten to death. And yeah, it looks like we leapt ahead a little bit because it's that that uh, makes Muir then make the counterplay of asking him straight up directly, why are you trying to burn Bishop? And that's what inspires Folger to tell them uh, what Operation Sideshow is up to, and the location of Bishop's capture, uh, which is Su Chow, which in its little tiny way is going to inform Bishop uh, or inform Muir of what Bishop was up to, because he knows that Hadley was sent to Su Chow after uh, Muir traded her to the Chinese. That's right. Now, the CNN story does go through, Digger does his job. And that leaves Muir thinking he's pretty much one, which, okay, this is, this is weird to me. I want to talk, talk about this because here, like the CNN story that comes out specifically goes out of its way to make it sound like Bishop was involved in espionage, which I think is bad. Espionage is a capital offense, even in the USA. I don't think that was the right story to put out. The story I think should have been like, Bishop was just innocent of anything, and that way the president would have cover to claim him. That's my number one worst tradecraft. The 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 news story, I think, from all the internal logic I can gather out of this movie, works at exactly counter purpose to what it's supposed to accomplish. I'm thinking he did it because he was trying to corner them and force them to accept that he was a spy when what he didn't expect was they were just going to contact the FCC and just, you know, blow it off. Like it was like a rumor. Right. But I'll, I'll, I'll stick with my guns here. Like the, uh, leaking that Bishop was a spy is going to get him killed. That doesn't get him saved. That, that puts him beyond the protection of the president. It doesn't usher him in under the wing of what the president can do to get Bishop out. Well, no, that gives him more value, which means the Chinese would want to trade him. 
Like, it, it, you know, it's the, I mean, like you're saying, it's a capital offense. Espionage is a capital offense in the U.S., but like, I mean, how many like uh, like espionage convicted people are actually executed? A lot of times, they're traded away for our people that have been like captured. That's a good point. You know, are held on for like decades until they, there's a piece that they can trade or something. Well, like you say, the the CNN story, like it's just kind of a blip in the water. Um, yeah, doesn't, doesn't doesn't move the story forward or backward because it gets countered so easily by Harker. Uh, so you know, Bishop needs a new plan, uh, which uh, he kicks into action first by. Uh, telling Gladys that he's going to need the imagery, like satellite imagery of the prison. Mm -hmm. And what's super cool about this is that Gladys tells him, you know, on the phone, he says, or she says, uh, you know, I can get that, but it would have to go through Folger's office. So it it's not shown, but what we can uh, suss out that she did was, she basically like had the requisition of the imagery, uh, like requisition the imagery be sent to Folger's office, which is apparently okay on procedure, but it would have looked weird or not been allowed for her to requisition the, this imagery file directly to Mir's office, right? Right. So he then watches. Uh, Folger sees that he's received the imagery um, and then he goes in and once again kind of uses a Ferris Bueller buddy buddy trick you know like everyone this <laughs> this Ferris Bueller thing I keep bringing up is because I feel like I feel like Bishop is kind of Ferris Bueller and Harker is the the principal you know <laughs> as, <laughs> and the CIA uh, Langley is like the school where like everyone knows and likes Muir and everyone knows and hates Harker. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this was, this was super cool to me that, okay, if I can't get the file sent directly to me and it's got to be sent to this other guy, then, okay, I'll have it sent to that other guy, but then I'll intercept it using, you know, my smooth Robert Redford, uh, moves, except in this case, of course, he's in there under pretext of like, hey, you know, like, what are we doing here? Do you remember when we could tell the good guys from the bad guys, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, and uh, also, you know, like, like he, he sees like, or wait, oh, yeah, he sees the file is in the, the reception area. Uh, and there's a guard there. So he can't just pick it up. But uh, after he talks with Folger, he sets his cigarettes down. And then after Folger is left and then Muir is coming out, he uses the pretext of, oh, I, I uh, forgot my cigarettes. And I'll, I'll just go back into the office and get them, you know, which, <laughs> which the guard is like, oh, no, sir. Like, I'll get them for you. You know, you're not, right. you, you know, he doesn't say it out loud, but you're not allowed to, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fool for that stupid shit <laughs> yeah I'm not gonna it's a nice trade-off no i'm not gonna let you into my boss's office uh, right. <laughs> um, when when he's not there but that's the whole point it's a total misdirect because when the guy goes in for the cigarettes that's when 
Muir uh, gets to grab the imagery file, stuff it into his jacket. The guy comes out with the cigarettes and cool, plus five points. And my number one best tradecraft, just that whole like uh, fun stuff of how he managed to get his hands on the file. Uh, I actually want to mark this scene. I mean, like, I'm totally on board with you. I, I love the whole uh, play that he does with, you know, Gladys was like, oh, only it could go, only go through Folger. That whole setup was really cool. And then him making the, like, you know, uh, switch off with the cigarette pack, you know, nice callback to the training with uh, Bishop. But I wanted to mark something in this scene as my number three worst tradecraft. That guard or secretary guy or whatever should have followed Muir into the office because he just got a bunch of important files delivered on his desk, and now Muir is alone at his desk with his files. I, you know, a lot of these things we're pointing out, I feel like it, it's like a training video for, like, new new CIA agents or analysts or whatever. Like, don't leave your desk unattended. Don't leave shit there. Like, don't let someone go into someone's office, like, by themselves. You know, because if he, let, he can't let Muir into the office by himself. But he should also let Muir just stay in by the reception desk area by himself. So he should have just walked with Muir in. I'm guessing Muir could have seen something in the office, but there's not a whole lot he could have seen without picking stuff up. So if he walks in, he sees Muir pick up the cigarettes and then walks with him out with the cigarettes. I so see. yeah, um, better better procedure. Yeah, so I'm gonna mark that as my three worst tradecraft. And then I'll uh, I'll throw out. A little bit of trivia, the pack of cigarettes that Mira uses as as this distraction are uh, the Morley brand, which is a fictional brand. It's not a real brand of cigarettes. And it also happens to be the exact same brand that uh, the smoking man used in the X-Files TV series. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Nice. (laughs) The reason why I needed the imagery was to kind of swap stuff out and get information of where he's going, figure out where other people like other bases are. But what's really interesting is because of the similarity between the prison island and the Bahamas coastline, he's now able to like make copies and set up this whole little trick that he's going to do for the board meeting because the board meeting starting to become privy to, you know, um, you're doing some shady stuff and working against them. So uh, they're going to bring this up. Like, what's going on with these phone calls? Why are you liquidating all your money? Like, all of a sudden, uh, you know, what's this $282,000? And when they finally, like, corner him, he, he, he plays this so beautifully. And this is totally like a poker game. Like, he just he just plays it like he's got nothing in his hands, but he's got this huge trick where uh, he's like – this is my favorite line of the whole movie. He's like – I've been using company resources for personal, you know, reasons. And basically he shows the, this like pamphlet of like acquiring land in the Bahamas, you know, and it's $282,000. And he's like, I've been planning out a retirement plan. And it just so happens that $282,000 is my life savings. And he shows them the pamphlet and it really matches up with the, the prison Island so, like, he, he pulled off this whole little nice decoy to make it look like all his satellite imagery he's been acquiring, all like his liquidation of all his assets into, like, a secure account that could pretty much go anywhere. You know, like, I think his excuse for imagery was like, oh, well, you know, there's 
with the new currents and stuff, there's erosion. I just wanted to make sure before I put put my payment down. And uh, so I'm making this my number one best trade craft was the Bahamas imagery with the the prison imagery, like like bait and switch swap thing. And he and he kind of like basically pulled them into his into his whole plan to 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 set up to like because this basically explains everything he's been doing. And he probably assumes they've all been watching him good because he's making phone calls from different offices and stuff. So th- this is how he really seals the deal that he's like, I've been cooperating. I'm just planning my retirement. Sure. My only quibble with that is that, I mean, yeah, uh, he did get surreptitiously get access to the imagery file, but nobody knows that. Like why, uh, like, the the fact that Harker uh, pulls that out as his ace card seems to be like to me like pretty unsupported. I don't see how Harker got to. Well, uh, the imagery wasn't the ace card. It was the the liquidation of all his assets and a payment of two hundred eighty two thousand dollars. So he had to explain, and that that's what makes it interesting. The the negotiations with. Um, uh, the Chinese to shut off the power on the island so that the assault, the the uh, covert assault and like extraction of the prisoners would work out because all the power had to be shut off. Then he had to convince a military unit to go in and like pick them up type of thing. So the negotiations of how much he's going to pay some Chinese, some the Chinese guy that he pays has some sort of power connection where he can shut power off at the prison island. He, he basically like did this whole like back and forth like uh what's that called Bart- not bartering uh heckling with this guy and and made it exactly two hundred eighty two thousand dollars because he had this pamphlet so the the ace in the hole wasn't the imagery so much that was just part of like the case they built against Muir what the big thing was like why don't you explain this two hundred eighty two thousand dollar payment or why you're liquidating your assets and stuff like that and, while we're doing this whole investigation. And he's able to dis- explain it by, well, I just so happened to be trying to get some land for retirement. So let's go back to prior to that, that basically like final, like, ah, scene, you know, where, right. uh, you know, the, it looks like the hero's completely up against the ropes and, and has been caught, but actually he's turning it around into a great thing. His plan to extract Bishop is like you said, to, to get this, um, uh, military unit. Um, he, he, he does some more like Ferris Bueller, buddy, buddy stuff with the guys in imagery to find out like who is overseeing air support for operation sideshow. Uh, quick question. I don't need an answer, but why do they need air support? That is interesting. Why would they need it? Well, maybe just, uh, just in case. Yeah, sure. Not sure. I guess. Yeah. Uh, it seems like a little overkill. He does formulate a plan to use that to extricate uh, Bishop and Hadley. All he's got to do is now figure out how to trigger it, to authorize it. And he's going to do that basically by forging an order from the CIA director to to go ahead and, and do that operation. By the way, it's it's overnight uh, after the last day that he was supposed to be there. Uh, so 
I think the fact, even though I'm sure Langley works, you know, 24 hours, a lot of people have gone home. Folger said, we'll, we'll meet again in the morning, but you know, he never checked out. And I think that security at Langley should be better than this. I think they should have keyed in on that. Yeah. That there was no out scan or something like that. Mm-hmm. You would think like a process like that, they, they'd be paying attention unless he's got so much clout. They're like, yeah, whatever. I guess. I'm sure there's retirees that could just walk in or something. Oh, I wouldn't bet on it. <laughs> but at the morning meeting, which is supposed to be the final meeting, on its face, there's no reason for him to like walk back into this meeting. At first, it seemed to me like kind of kind of bullshit. Like like what is his reason for for showing up at this meeting? I mean, he comes in, he says like Hey, I got some other stuff. I don't think it's relevant, but you might want to, you guys might want to hear about it. Uh, Again, nobody says like, hey, aren't you retired as of now? (laughs) This is really. Well, they said they were going to reconvene the next morning. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's how he got dispensation to, to, to be there for one more day. Right. Maybe. But there is one thing that is happening here as a result of Harker's. Uh, suspicions of Muir being made uh, clear, being put on the table in a way that looks very bad for Muir. And that is that the CIA director is, for the first time, actually in the room. So I think the idea here is that we want to think that Muir kind of left some breadcrumbs while planning the operation to get Bishop out to also leave enough evidence for him to be suspected of being, you know, a, a, a dickhead. Right. They really need to super pay attention to, to get the CIA director directly into the room. And the reason the director needs to be in the room is because the military guy that's going to do Operation Wiley, Dirt I out, think was his name. Sure. Is going to make a final call to get verbal confirmation that the operation is a go. And so Muir needs to be in the same room as the CIA director is when that call comes in. So that's, that's, you understand what I'm saying here? Like, I think we're, yeah, I think that's kind of, I think that's like a, like, I'm definitely on board with that, that he, he had to make himself look suspicious enough to get the director involved so that he could make the phone confirmation in the morning because the director would be there. Right. That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely on board with that. And I think Mir as a character has been established enough to be able to pull off something like that. The thing for me that gives it minus spy points, uh, even though I love it, you know, I'm not criticizing. I'm just t- on a technical level. The way this phone call gets into the office and the way that Muir arranges to be able to pick up the phone and in the in right in front of everyone without them knowing, pretend that he's the CIA director and say dinner out is a go. Uh, that phone call is routed okay let's say let's say the military guy says get me the cia director on the phone and who knows maybe the instructions 
that of the orders that Muir forged directly said like, Hey, when you get, when you need to get final confirmation, contact Gladys, who's Muir's secretary. Cause she's right. the one that routes the phone call into the conference room. But I don't think that's how it works at all. Right. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. There's a few things where it's just like, I don't know if you could actually pull this off at Langley. Um, but uh, again, I, I, some of these things, I feel like this must have been trying to like, like it makes it, it makes it feel like a training video. This is what you should never do. And this is why, because these type of things can happen. Like some random, you know, some, somebody could just want to go rogue and, and make a play like this and, and, and use an entire arm of the military to make an operation on their own volition. You know, it's kind of scary, actually, when you think, even though we're rooting for Muriam Bishop, it's kind of scary to think that like one person could even do that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it it, it, it kind of, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, I like, I like the movie. Um, just, I feel like some of the most, some of the most important parts of the plot are really, really fuzzy. And this is, right. this is one of them. And also, like, uh, you know, he gets out of the gate in his Porsche, very Hollywood, just before they realize, like, they've been had. What the fuck did Mirror think was going to happen after the credits rolled? <laughs> right. Like, they're never going to come after him or something. Dude, he's like, done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be an indictment. They, you know, there's, there's going to be yeah, some disciplinary action. Yeah. There's no way you can walk away clean from something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, do you have anything else you wanted to uh, hit up before we go to debriefing? Yeah, really quick uh, for the audience. Um, you know, Todd and I have our own, like, never-ending list of spy films and shows to do. And we're hoping that, you know... We, we see you guys listening, you know, it's been like a year and, you know, we're really excited that we, we got some like uh, dedicated listeners and we, we want to know what you guys want us to talk about. I mean, we're going to talk about goofy stuff. We're going to talk about really good stuff. Like we have our own list and we're just kind of selecting, but you know, we, we, we really appreciate you guys listening. So like, you know, go to the website, spieslikeus.net, go to the contact tab and Shoot us an email in the form or just like shoot us a tweet or a comment or a message on our Facebook page and let us know what you guys want to hear or tell us what you don't like about the show, what you do like about the show. You know, we, we really we really want to get you guys involved so we, we, we can make the show better. And, and you know, if, you, if there's something you really want us to talk about, you know, let us know. Agents, please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. I really like this movie. Uh, I brought it up to Todd to kind of watch. We were talking about doing something meaty, but didn't want to do something too meaty for this one. Um, so I kind of brought up Spy Game because there's like tons of stuff in it. and uh, I, I, I've i seen it probably four times before uh, we even thought about doing it for the podcast. And it, it's a really fun, like high, fast paced, you know, d- despite it. Uh, being about a lot of tradecraft, you know, a lot of a lot of spy films like that have hefty tradecraft can be kind of slow paced, which I like. But I, I I liked that they were able to put in tons of tradecraft and make it really high paced. Um, so I I think I'm going to go with a four on this one um, because a lot of the tradecraft was like 
really solid. It was really hard for me to pick some worst trade crafts for this one. And um, I'm just looking at my previous ratings and like, you know, I don't want to quite give it like a Miss Sloan or like a most wanted man, you know, and definitely not a good shepherd for me. But like, I think it's a really, really good film and I really enjoyed it. Um, so I'm, 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 if, if you're not in a spy films, you're going to like it. Because uh, chances are you probably like Brad Pitt or Robert Redford. And if you are in a spy films, you're going to like it because there's tons of trade craft. I think it's, I mean, it's a, it's a super solid movie. I'm, I was very jazzed, especially on my first watch of it, of just how much tradecraft is going on in this film. Um, uh, I think we mentioned before, like all the three flashbacks uh, are not only do they each function as like a short film in their own right, but they also like each have multiple layers of progression of the development of their relationship, which is kind of what the movie is really about. But then it just falls apart a little bit at the end and doesn't get up into that superstar territory of where I think it could have gotten with mm-hmm. in that uh, mainly I just, I never bought the mere decision to, to risk everything for Bishop. He was kind of like on one mode throughout his entire career. And then all of a sudden he just flips around and does the exact opposite of everything he's ever preached. You're, you're basically asking me as the audience member to fill in the blanks and to create my own (laughs) internal story of why he's doing this. And in a good trauma, you don't do that. You actually show me and you take me through the process. Um, Obviously every, almost everything that I would have wanted changed about this movie would have made it way longer than two hours. So I totally understand that if I had been like, you know, the consistency guy in the operation, uh, you know, of making this movie that at several points I would have brought up, like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. And everyone in the room would have said, shut up, Todd. It's not important. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the movie we're trying to make. But uh, I'm totally cool with with a 3.5. I'll put it right next to Sneakers Mm -hmm. on rewatchability. Yeah, it's it's solid, and there's a lot to it, and it and it bears rewatching. Now we're gonna we're gonna quickly recap our uh, best and worst tradecraft moments. Uh, in the movie before we go on to our park bench rating, which is basically a one to five scale of how accurate the tradecraft portrayed in the movie is park benches is our rating scale because we love scenes where two spies uh, meet at a park bench and pretend to <laughs> and pass some information and pretend they don't know each other. Just, Wait, there weren't any park benches in this movie. There were no park benches in this movie, but there are, there are a lot of park benches in a lot of spy movies. Oh, I just uh, realized that. I want to change my rating. No. <laughs> uh, my number three best tradecraft in this movie was the uh, Padres baseball cap. Just, uh, you know, sh- shining your light in, in plain sight. I'm an American and I'm proud to be an American, so clearly I could not possibly be a spy. My number right. <laughs> two best, my number two best is, uh, you know, I mean, seriously, uh, 
Muir's actions per minute are just like just off the chart in this film. This film is like so demonstrates in a way I don't think we've seen before. Uh, like like a, a super veteran spy just be able to process and absorb and and just take in like so much information from all around him. It's great. It's great. And the phone call is just my little best example part of, of that, of how much you can do in 30 seconds, how much information you can take in, how much information you can give out, how much you can hide. It's, it's, it's great. My number one best tradecraft was the, you know, convoluted way that he got access to the imagery file that having to be routed through Folger's office uh, by one means and then being picked up by another. And then help, by the way, also like replacing the imagery in the file. So if anybody did find out that you had accessed it, uh, that you'd have a cover story for why and how you did. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, my number three best trade craft was uh, the vodka spill and vomit juice uh, to shake the tail in Berlin. Um, he, he had the asset pour vodka on his shirt and drink a swig. And then, and then Bishop runs into like, just like pulls the car up on the curb and just like bursts into a pub, which they already had contacts there. You know, it was like a nice little checkpoint uh, for counter surveillance and then just drinks this like, like vial of something that makes him like just Ralph immediately, which just made it look like they were a couple of drunks. Uh, my number two best trade craft, uh, even though this was super shady, was using the murdered parents for the doctor in Beirut uh, to basically recruit him to kill Salome. Um, I, I think that was definitely believable to convince a doctor that his parents were murdered by this guy to like break his like oath or something. Uh, my, my number one best tradecraft though was, uh, you know, just like Todd pointed out the whole imagery thing, but I wanted to really key on, on using the, the combination of the Bahamas Island with the China Island looking similar and, and making it look like, Oh, I, I, spent or I liquidated all my funds for $282,000 exactly so that uh, I could buy this island in the Bahamas. And and I thought, I thought it was a nice and believable kind of reason for what he was doing. What about your worst? Nearly all of my, nearly all of my worst are leveled at the movie and not necessarily the characters starting with number three, right. uh, you know, uh, just missing parts of the plot or, or badly explained parts of the plot the failure uh to make any connection uh between bishop and operation sideshow that would freak these guys out to the level that they're freaked out uh seems to be like a dropped ball number two worst for me is i don't know how it is that that phone call from the military guy gets routed into that conference call through gladys uh, it does not, it strains credibility, strains credulity is the right term there. Uh, my number one worst, I still think that the CNN report, this could go back to like things not being properly explained, but the CNN report, I think should not have flagged Bishop as a spy. I think that, I think that 
I think that represents a fundamental misunderstanding on the part of the filmmakers of how captured spy negotiations type stuff works, even though I don't have any super like accurate real world knowledge of how that shit works. But the movie could have explained it. <laughs> right. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Um Usually when I'm trying to figure out my worst tradecrafts, I'm trying to think of things that really had bad consequences or really could have become really bad consequences. So the ones that I picked for Spy Game um, were things that were kind of game changers or slip-ups that kind of would have made things easier. So my number three worst tradecraft... Uh, was that guard or secretary guy not following Muir to get his cigarettes in the office? If the guy followed him in, then Muir doesn't get the images in in training at Langley. Like, hey, don't leave your stuff unattended. You know, don't let someone else into someone else's office like by themselves. You know, uh, my number two worst tradecraft was Muir calling from his car. That that phone call is what kind of triggers Harker's suspicion of Muir and gets Harker to start looking at him. My number one worst tradecraft was Muir underestimating Bishop's attraction to Hadley. Him trying so hard to be in control of the situation is really kind of what set off the problem, but then we wouldn't have had a movie. So but those are my worsts. So one to five, one park bench has no basis in reality whatsoever. Five is basically a documentary. What do we think about this one? And just to kind of really hit home on the park benches, we only gave away 1.5. And, oh, no, we gave, we gave it to Spy Kids and <laughs> our man Flint. Yeah, if we have to, we'll dip below one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and we still haven't really given a five. Uh, our closest one was a four and a half for Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Well, and also, you know, when we talk about park benches, it's not just about the accuracy, but about the quantity. You know, some films, like I think Argo, we we dropped a little bit because, like, what we saw was very accurate tradecraft-wise, but there was so little of it. Yeah, and even though it was a historical piece, because, like, we've kind of described park benches as, like, a number five being basically a documentary, um, like, it... It's a number of reasons. So we kind of like sit down and chat about it and figure out like, okay, well, this is how we feel about this movie. Like, like, is this like super realistic? Is this not whatsoever realistic? You know, so just, just so we kind of hammer home. What's going to drag me down the most in this film is just Langley security, just sleeping on the job, just the way that they're not <laughs> monitoring phone calls the way security doesn't notice like that the guy who was supposed to check out for his last day, like didn't check out and ended up just like having free run of the CIA office, staying up all night, (laughs) you know, doing his stuff. That's, that's going to drag it down. But what pulls it up for me is that this movie is so drenched in tradecraft in very solid, good, fun tradecraft. I, I would try and argue higher than a three. Like, I don't know if we should go with a four, considering with what we've done before, uh, you know, like a most wanted man. 
I think was a lot more realistic with how an intelligence agency would yeah, operate. Yeah, Most Wanted Man in Munich, like, and both have almost no flaws, you know, almost yeah. no like holes that you could drive something through. So I think that's, I think, I think that's good enough reason for me to go with a 3.5. Yeah. I, I think three and a half is good. That puts us with the departed and the good shepherd and samurai spy 3.5 park benches for spy game. And that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter at spies underscore like us. Visit us on our website at www.spieslikeus.net. You can find out about upcoming episodes. Also, what will really help us out is if you give us a review on wherever you found our podcast, either on iTunes or your Android app or YouTube or wherever you listen to us. Uh, even if you didn't like the show, just give us a review. It'll help us give us feedback so we can make the show better. And it can also help other people who haven't found the show yet find out about us. Hey, Moira, initiate Protocol 9. Protocol 9 initiated. This podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.